Hi, and welcome to the Queer Readers Discord server. I'm Rachel, a server moderator. And I'm Ella, another moderator. And we are so excited to be welcoming back Sierra Simone for the spotlight of her book, Saint. Hi, Sierra. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. We're so excited to have you back again. Um, so since we have previously interviewed you, we're just going to skip over the general questions about um, writing process and things like that and just get straight to chatting about Saint. Listeners, if you do want to hear that stuff about the writing process, if you listen to our past episode in July 2021, A Lesson on Thorns, then it's all there. So listen to that as well. Yeah. Um, and yeah, just a little warning that Saint does deal with um, issues of suicide ideation. But we'll be discussing that today. So to, get, so to get us started, for those who haven't read Saint, what should they know about the book and why should they give it a try? Um, okay, so Saint is, um, it's an MM romance that it follows uh, another brother in the series of books I've been writing, um, Priest and Sinner being the first of them. There's this family, the Bell Brothers, um, and boy, people should really stop letting them take vows in the Catholic Church because they're not really good at it. Um, <laughs> but basically, um, Saint is about one of the Bell Brothers who's become a monk. Um, he used to be like a millionaire businessman, a very successful one, uh, until one day he basically just abruptly left his entire life um, and became a monk. Um, and in the process of leaving his entire life behind, he also left behind a boyfriend that he loved quite a bit. Um, and so now five years later, that uh, ex-boyfriend has come back. He's come to Aiden's monastery um, to work on an article. Uh, and this sort of intersects with Aiden maybe thinking about switching orders. So uh, in the Catholic Church, uh, when you are a monk, there are different orders that you can be part of. There are Benedictine monks and um, Franciscan monks. There's all sorts of different uh, orders, and they all have slightly different ways of getting at leading a holy life. And Aiden is thinking about changing that, um, and he's thinking about moving to a monastery in Europe. So uh, together with Elijah writing this article, um, he and Aiden go to Europe and they're touring different monasteries. Um, and part of this is all these monasteries brew beer. Um, so they're trying out the different beers, um, you know, of these monasteries while they're touring through. And of course, as you do on a medieval monastic beer road trip through Europe with your hot ex-boyfriend, uh, they fall back in love. That is an excellent synopsis. And... <laughs> I feel like this book is so sensory and your your um, summary touches on that. Like it's all about how things feel like on the inside of you and the outside of you. And so I really loved how the plot captured that, like helped capture that because there's just um, so much in the scenery and I like you feel like you can smell the air and the you can taste the beer, even though. I don't really like beer, but in while I was reading the book, I was like, maybe I do like beer. <laughs> this, this all sounds so great. So, yeah, okay. E excellent answer, author. Good job. Yeah. So, we we must know um, where you got the idea of for for this book, which is a monk on a European beer tour with his ex boyfriend, as you said. Um, yeah, so this is like, this is sort of the best of both worlds in terms of creative process, because sometimes I have ideas like, 
for a lesson in thorns, for example, which are, you know, which was sort of a nexus of lifelong interests and aesthetics for me. Um, but with Saint, it, I sort of had a prompt, right? Because I'm writing about these these bell brothers who should stop taking vows in the church. Um, and so I had done a priest, I had done a nun. And so it just made sense to me, I was going to do a monk. Monks are great. Who doesn't like a monk? And um, so I sort of had this monk prompt, right? Um, but I actually didn't know a ton about um, monks and sort of like what it's like to live in a monastery to begin with. Um, I'd heard stories of people who had visited monasteries. Um, you know, I had heard accounts of them, but actually what a monk's day in life is like was something kind of new to me. And so as I was exploring what it meant to live a life as a monk, I really started coming across things that are like deep running fascinations for me, like, you know, medieval European history, right? Like beautiful landscapes that are really anchored in history um, and contemplation, which is something that I had been thinking a lot about on my own time. Um, I had just read a fantastic book called How to Do Nothing by Jenny O'Dell. I highly recommend it for literally everyone. Um, it's also a really great audiobook. And How to Do Nothing is really, um, it's a nonfiction work, and it's really an exploration of what it means to be, um, just what it means to be a person in a world where productivity is valued to the point where even our free time, the things that we do for fun on social media, we can measure in things like likes and comments and engagement. Um, and so the sort of like resistance to the need to constantly be working or even doing, um, you know, we kind of have a resistance to like, if I'm just sitting still, not doing anything, and I don't have anything to show for my time, that time is is sort of wasted. And so even the idea of hobbies has slowly turned into more things to do. So that if we're not, you know, working on that cross stitch, if we're not painting that picture, we start to feel sort of guilty about not doing it, which should not be the case with hobbies. Um, but anyway, it really intersects with the lives that contemplative monks lead. And if you're a contemplative monk, if you're in a contemplative order, that basically means that your entire day, your entire life is structured around prayer and becoming closer to God. And so time is really protected and um, structured in a different way uh, in those contemplative monasteries. And so I had already been sort of wrestling with this, like, you know, what does it mean that I feel like I have to work all the time, that I feel guilty for not working, not producing, and then to come across, you know, monks who have been anti-capitalist for 2000 years, and to be like, oh, like these people have figured it out millennia ago, they, they figured out that humans can't be reduced to what they have to show for their time, that there's another way to value time and value life uh, and a day. And so uh, as I was writing Saint and doing this research, it really started like all coming together in this really serendipitous way. And that's one of the most amazing things about being an author is sometimes like, I tend not to be too woo woo about writing. Um, but sometimes there are just serendipities that come together so beautifully that it almost feels like, you know, um, you know, just kismet. And so the fact that I was writing, a, had already decided to write about a millionaire who'd abruptly become a monk, 
and then to be sort of encountering this idea of like, we, uh, as a society have really damaged how we think about time and what a person's worth is. So for someone to reject, uh, money and success and ambition and instead choose something that has no external markers of any of those things ended up being like a super fruitful, um, place. Uh, and then of course, as like from the beginning, I knew that mental health was sort of something that Aiden was, you know, uh, walking with. And so it all sort of fit together to me, like how, how in a millionaire's busy, busy, chaotic life, you know, how can you make space to take care of yourself when you feel like you're, you're absolutely at the end of what you can do? I can totally see why someone in that position would be like, nope, I'm going to get in my truck and I'm going to drive to a monastery (laughs) and I'm going to begin my new life as a monk right now. Um, And so it all really, it all really came together as I was writing it. I love that. You know, I really, I'm not at all like a um, informed person about the Catholic church anyway, (laughs) but that being said, I feel like there, I didn't realize how the monastic, existence is sort of its own thing it kind of felt like it existed parallel to but not um kind of interwoven in the rest of the church as sort of a structure um and i guess i just had never given that a lot of thought but it was really interesting i guess to sort of see how you depicted that relationship between the larger faith and then this this um lifestyle which felt like kind of its own thing in a way if like it it didn't seem to be um well in 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 uh, one in one way that it was different i guess is this sort of enduring um lifestyle like you talked about that in in so many ways has been unchanged for so long so it was a real learning experience for me and now i want to go to a monastery and apparently they have to let me in if i show up right (laughs) so there we go do offer like, you know, hospitality services. So people I know who are non-religious, they will go just for a couple days, you know, for sort of like a silent retreat or to really get their head around some research that they're doing or a work project. Um, Just because it's such a um, rich environment, but also very quiet and respectful. And uh, for a lot of people, they find that context switch is like really beneficial for thinking. But yeah, the the monastic life in the Catholic Church um, does not, it's, it's kind of got its own hierarchy. Um, and so it's not uh, integrated with what we call secular uh, priests, um, which I always think is kind of a funny word, right? Because secular to me means like not religious at all. But uh, within the Catholic Church, a secular bishop, a secular priest, they are parish priests and bishops. They're pretty much who we think of when we think of a priest. Um, and in a monastery, there are priests uh, as well. Uh, they perform all the masses and the rites. Not every monk is a priest, but many are. Um, and they are non-secular. They are, you know, they're Benedictine or Jesuit or whatever it may be. So they are part of that that order. Um, and yeah, that sort of being a little bit in their own structure has allowed them sometimes this is like one of those could be for better, could be for worse, has allowed them a little bit more latitude in interpretation of things in how they uh, open or close their communities. Um, and so you get, you know, monastic orders and monasteries that can have a wildly different flair. And this is also true for nuns as well, which is why sometimes you'll see 
um, these radical, you know, anti-capitalist nuns with their, you know, you know, like the nuns on a bus with their bus that goes around the country to provide free health care for people. Um, and it's actually for the American, uh, for the American bishops, they are often frequently concerned about these monastics who are not under their direct control, uh, who are really a lot of times going against the political grain of the American Catholic Church. So it's a really interesting friction and like place to explore because Aiden is queer. Um, and so it was really important to me that um, of the reasons why he's a sad, hot monk, being queer is not one of them. Um, and so I wanted to make sure that he was in an environment where that friction was reduced as much as I could make it, um, that he had, you know, um, someone who understood him, that he had a mentor there who understood him. Um, and so the monastic environment actually gave me a little actual latitude to do that because I could make it so um, he was surrounded by supportive people. I love that little kind of mental health group that he started with all the other monks and just how like all the people in that group were just so supportive of each other and I just I never really thought of monks just being like I just never thought of monks at all really <laughs> but they're so dynamic in this book and I, I also just love how like there's so much more focus on not letting tasks like get in the way of more spiritual needs and I felt like I've never read about a way of life like that and I was like that sounds like paradise almost. Yeah, you know, I think that, um, <laughs> you know, it's actually right there in the Bible frequently, you know, like Jesus was not <laughs> like a get back to work kind of teacher, right? Like he says, put down your fishing nets, come and follow me. Um, he tells Martha, you know, stop cleaning your house and like, come hang out with me. And so, you know, this idea that you could actually that maybe it's not the individual's fault for not being closer to God, but that it is the environment's fault for making it so hard. And so what a monastery does is it creates an environment that is, you know, supposed to be in its ideal form, right? Like, I'm sure there are a lot of monasteries where people have ultimately been hampered in their spiritual growth. But the ideal is, is that this is an environment that makes it so you can blossom to become the most sacred spiritual uh, creature that you can. Um, and it is almost impossible to do when you have the concerns of the world on your shoulders. The only way to do it is to escape. And that, uh, that like, <laughs> I can't be my best self in the world, so I have to escape, is really a point of conversation in the book because Elijah is a journalist. He's... Um, extremely vocal and active about the things he cares about. And so he's like, no, you have to stay and make something better. <laughs> like, you don't get to just opt out of making the world a better place when it gets hard. You like, that's not fair to the rest of us that you can just escape, you know, and Aiden comes from it to the from the perspective that like, I couldn't do anything else in the moment. Like that was it for Aiden choosing to live this life was a choice of survival. Um, and so like, he really has saved himself by doing this. And so for him, it was like, but I had to survive before I could, before I could do anything to make the world a better place. So that is something that's kind of discussed in the book. Like, is it fair for some people to be like, I want to be a fully actualized human being. And so I'm just kind of noping out of the outside world. Um, or should we all stay and still try to realize that self actualization, but 
you know, help other people along the way uh, and change the world as we live in it. Yeah, I totally understood where Elijah was coming from because I think it's also like almost an envy type thing of why do you get to leave the world but I can't and I have to face these issues. But then also why can't people just, you know, leave the world and not have to face these like quite horrific things, which I think, especially in a world like today, where you just get so much news thrown at you that you can't escape it. And I also liked how like Elijah, he just loved at the end of it, like he wasn't checking his phone. He wasn't constantly having to like make all these, you know, arguments on Twitter and things like that, because that is just exhausting. Yes. <laughs> it is so exhausting. And I think that that was one of the things that was such a through line uh, from uh, books I read about monasteries in the 1940s and 50s to very present account, like present day accounts, was this, I don't want to say disconnection, right? But like a lot of monks and, um, you know, people who live a monastic life or a cloistered life, they don't hear news from the outside world, but for like once a week, you know, like they, the monastery probably only has one TV and once a week they might turn on CNN for an hour or Saturday mornings are the days when they might catch up on newspapers. And initially as someone who does, you know, check my phone quite a bit and I have a very unhealthy relationship with my Apple news app, I was like, you know, how can you stay informed uh, if you're not constantly engaging with current issues you know how do you become a better person how do you keep learning how do you know what the right thing to do is if you're not constantly engaged but what I found was was that it wasn't an either or situation it wasn't that these monks were never ever hearing about the outside world it was that they were learning in a way that allowed them time to digest and feel empathy for the world events. And so you have a monk like Thomas Merton, who spent all of the 60s and early 70s writing about the Vietnam War, writing about nuclear disarmament, writing about civil rights and things that were really passionate to him. But he was only reading the newspaper once a week. And so it's like, how do you have someone who ended up being such a force for for good, advocating for peace, advocating for fairness and justice and, and nuclear safety, but also found time to give himself the space to digest and process the news. Instead of, I think now, right, right now, it feels like we don't have time to digest one, you know, horror before a new fresh hell is already like on our phone. Um, and so that was what I found really fascinating is that you can give yourself that space that that um creative room and spiritual room to to um process how you feel about things uh and still be someone who creates justice and creates goodness around them right and so that was something i was really interested in in saint is that it doesn't have to be either or right like you can you can have it you can have both things so just Circling background, you mentioned this a little bit before, um, but like when I started this book, like I was not expecting such like kind of a beautiful, like tender explanation of a monk's faith and his queerness. So I was kind of wondered, like, what do you to writing kind of about this dynamic that Aiden deals with? Queerness and theology is, you know, like a it's a really productive space for me to occupy as a writer. Like it's, you know, it's something I think about frequently both personally and on a systemic level. 
And one of the things that that I really found, you know, in the last couple years as I do research for different kinds of books is how many queer people are in the history of the church and in the present day of the church and how um, so many of them are still in the system and being visibly queer, even in a system that is, you know, at best uh, non-inclusive and at worst actively hostile and dangerous. And so I really loved the idea of, of someone who was in a monastic order that was a little bit more uh, safe for him initially, right? So we have a lot of, you know, bandwidth, I guess, for him to sort of be working towards these other problems of spirituality and, you know, what his future is going to look like. But also just being himself in that system was changing the people around him. Um, and I am a big believer in like, you know, building the world you want to see. Um, and so I took the license to really create environments where you could imagine a queer Catholicism, where you could imagine a queer uh, spirituality, because fundamentally, God is queer, right? Like God is not only um, gender queer or agender, but God in Catholicism as the Trinity. Uh, I can't remember the exact Latin word, but the the Latin word for the Trinity basically translates to um, the act of penetrating oneself, and so it is three interlocked, self-penetrating beings: the the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so this idea of God as queer, of theology as fundamentally queer at its heart, to me marries really well with this um, this belief system, which is incredibly rich and incredibly tapestried with stories about queer saints, queer believers, um, uh, queer activists. And so even though the system continues to uh, dogmatically push back, against queer people and remain non-inclusive, the the faith itself is not that way. And that is one of the things that I really ended up writing my way to. I did not know it at the beginning of the book, and I knew it at the end of the book. Um, and this happens sometimes because there are a lot of authors who, when they start writing a book, they know exactly what they want to say. Um, and instead, when I write a book, I'm beginning with a question. And so this was one of the times where I was like, how do we, how do you go on from here? Like what, like it's enough, it's not enough to just know that, um, you know, that, the, that we can queer theology, that we can queer Catholicism, like what happens next? How do you, how do you push back in that system? Um, and then at the end of the book, I really realized that, you know, what, is important to remember is that faith and spirituality and God in in any paradigm, right? Not just Christianity and not just Catholicism belongs to the people. It does not belong to the hierarchy. It does not belong to priests or bishops or even the Pope. Like it belongs to the people. Um, and when Catholicism is at its best, it is so elastic in allowing the people to sort of dominate the kinds of worship they have. Um, and so it's kind of fitting that the book is called Saint, because I actually think that Saint worship, Catholics would say it's Saint veneration, not Saint worship, um, is 
uh, really folk religion at its finest. Um, Catholicism has a little bit of an uneasy relationship with saints um, because it is so people-driven. Who becomes a saint? Who gets venerated? This is why you'll find in the Catholic Church there are um, holy people who are being venerated and they've never even been canonized yet because the people decide who they want as their saint. Uh, and they just carry they carry it through, um, especially in Latin America and um, parts of the Pacific Islands. You will find a lot of folk saints, which are saints that have no historical provenance that probably started out as local deities um, that the people have Catholicized. And the Catholic Church is very reluctant to push back on some of these folk saints because they know that if they take them away from the believers, they will, they will, the believers will be unhappy, right? Like the believers are driving saint worship and saint veneration. Uh, and the Catholic church is just really trying to sort of hold on to like the brand of like, you know, we've canonized them. It's all official. It's our thing, but really it's the believers thing. Anyway, that was a really long ramble. What I meant to say was, uh, I think that ultimately saint really reinvested in me the idea that we have the power over our own faith and how that faith is expressed. Um, and it's not the job of the people in power to tell us uh, that we cannot, we cannot worship in the way that we need. Sarah, I'm so glad you went into that because you helped me kind of unpack this little thread that I had um, definitely gotten, but hadn't fully understood, which is about um, the idea of being a saint and how, um, that is brought up with Aiden, like he'll, when he, when he's speaking to other people in the, in the faith and there's this concept of, of being a saint, which he sort of gives that throwaway line of like, well, I'm not a saint. And then it's put back to him. Well, like, well, aren't you? And that moment struck me, but I didn't fully get it. Cause I don't know enough about Catholicism, but I remember thinking like, and it's the title and he's a saint, I guess. <laughs> like, so I appreciate that little bit of context because that theme was definitely there and I didn't realize how literal it was um, because you kind of did it in that subtle way, um, that, that link between being a saint and just being like the best version of yourself you can be and how those things are not really necessarily different, I guess, in the church. Yes, yes. I really loved the uh, European road trip that they go on like the way that you wrote it again it was just like so beautiful and I just really wish that I could have joined them and like tried that French honey beer like I hate beer but man I want that honey beer <laughs> so I just wanted to know kind of how did you approach like writing and like researching that trip and also is the honey beer real because that is a very important question <laughs> Um, I'm sad to say that the honey beer is entirely an invention. There is honey beers there out in the world. They are all delicious. That particular one I uh, made up. Um, but you know, I uh, am. A, I, we talked a little bit about this with the lesson in thorns. But I'm a very setting first writer, um, which is not typical in contemporary romance. Um, I guess I mean a lesson in thorns kind of straddles how we define contemporary romance, um, but. Usually setting first writers gravitate towards speculative fiction, um, but here I am and I really love creating environments that mirror 
what someone is feeling inside a character and then also create, you know, some good kinds of friction or create certain kinds of challenges for that character. Um, and so when I, I kind of knew always, right, that I wanted them to go to different monasteries. Um, and it didn't take me very long to be like, Trappist make beer. I love beer. They should go to these, you know, brewing monasteries. Um, and so what happened then was I dug up everything I could about um, brewing, monastic brewing, um, Trappist beer. There is one book for anyone who's really interested that was fantastic. It's called Trappist Beer Travels. Uh, it was written by three American women uh, who traveled uh, to Europe and they visited like 12 different Trappist monasteries. Uh, and their breweries and tried all their beer. And what's great about it is that it gives you um, an amazing description of each monastery, tons of pictures, a little bit about their history, and then it also gives you the tasting notes of the beer, <laughs> which was good because I like beer, but purely in a, a casual sit on my couch kind of way. I'm not good at being like, this has got a hint of, you know, tobacco and, and chocolate. Um, so what happened was I had this book and then I ordered a beer from each monastery to be shipped to my house so that when I drank it, <laughs> I could read the tasting notes and be like, okay, this is what, you know, this is what grass tastes like when it's a note in a beer. This is what fruit tastes like when it's a note in a beer. Um, and so, and then I just have to tell you this quick little story, but randomly we ended up having someone who was going to Belgium. Um, who could get us a beer from uh, the West Flatteren beer, which is like the rarest beer in the world. And you can only get it in Belgium. They don't ship it anywhere. So you can only get it if your body is in Belgium. And randomly, we just happened to know someone who was going and they're like, oh, yeah, I can get you some of that beer. So we got to try the rarest beer in the world. And it was delicious. I will say the hype is deserved. That sounds like the most perfect like research you can ever do. And I really I want to again, I don't to, but I want this very rad beer. Yeah. yeah, it was it was a real hard day at the office, I got to tell you. <laughs> Sierra, um, we're curious about the point of view structure you chose for the book. So most of the story is told in Aiden's point of view, but then there are these kind of like interludes almost with a different point of view, and it's Elijah, and it's his voice, it's like his written voice because it's either excerpts from his notebook. Um, I want to call it notebook. It's not a journal. Right? I think it's called a notebook of the book. I can't remember. Or it's the um, excerpts from the published article that he's writing um, af that he, or that he writes after um, their journey about the trip. So I was wondering how you arrived at that structure. I thought it was really impactful and I'm curious um, I'm curious how you made that choice narratively. Yeah. So that's one of those things that, you know, as a writer, I'm like, oh, I actually, I'm not 100% rock solid on that choice. Like there are some things you do as a writer, like, you know, making the narrative, the spine of your narrative about tasting beer and you're like, perfect. <laughs> like 10 out of 10, no notes. Uh, but the, the structure with the point of view was a decision that I didn't even make necessarily because the other two books in the series have that structure. So you have a bell brother who is the narrator. He is the point of view character. And then in priest, you have his love interests confessions. And then in uh, center, you have voicemails left by the love interest, um, a woman named Zenny. And uh, so there was 
this sort of existing structure in the series where you have a main, like a lead narrator, and then the love interest has these sort of like interstitials. Um, and it fit Priest and Sinner perfectly. Like, I really enjoy the way that those stories unfolded with that structure. Saint was the first book in the series that I wrote, and something just felt strange while I was writing it. Um, and, you know, my editor was like, I think you really need to expand these interstitials. Initially, they didn't do as much work as they should have. They were a little bit more sort of surface level, I guess, glimpses into Elijah's thinking. And so that's when I added in like the notebook, not just the article. Um, so you could get a little bit more uh, in depth with what he was thinking. Um, because, and I think it's because in Saint, um, these characters are going on this journey together. And so while Aiden is the one who has sort of the biggest arc to complete, uh, Elijah is changing too. And, you know, he is really reevaluating re what he thought he knew. And he's also reevaluating, you know, what he wants to do with his life and, and his relationship to work. And so I think that it needed, you know, it needed more from him. And so after I finished it, I edited it, I added in more things, you know, and then we published it. <laughs> I kept being like, I wish I had more. Elijah. And so if there's anything I would change going back to the book, I think that I would give him a full point of view. Um, maybe Aiden would have more chapters, but I think that I would like to see um, more. And I would also like to see Aiden through Elijah's eyes more because I think that it kind of helps Aiden kind of come into fuller view as a person. So like it was a choice that I sort of made by default because it was like the structure of the series. Um, but actually having written it, I think that like, okay, now as a writer, I've decided it's okay. You can retire the structure of a series or, or pivot to a slightly different structure if you feel like that serves the story better. So actually the next book in the series, I think will be a proper like dual point of view story for that, for that reason. You know, I'm so torn because I agree with what you said, like in terms of I love Elijah. And so the idea of knowing more about him is I can't say that that's a bad idea. But at the same time, I really loved kind of being left a with a little bit of a mystery. But I enjoy that in um, books that have only one first person point of view. I, I enjoy like not you know, being with that character and then not knowing exactly what's going on in the other person's mind, no matter how badly you want to. But then the glimpses I thought into Elijah through the notebook were, I I thought, very illuminating. So I don't know. I feel like it was the right choice for this book, even if it wasn't really a choice, like it worked out because I um, also loved sort of experiencing uh, Elijah through this voice that he developed for the, that he, you know, as a journalist, um, which was somewhat intimate, but then also that like visceral closeness of the notebook. So I don't know. I loved it. But it's really interesting to hear that it, that you wrestled with it. And I think, I do think the notebook was really helpful probably if that wasn't originally there, because that's obviously so much closer than what he would be writing for, you know, public consumption, if you will. Although, um, although that rang really true, like this is gr what a, gr a great journalist has so much of themselves, I think, in their work, which must be terrifying for them. But um, so I I don't know. That's interesting. I can't I can't say that I would change a word about this book because it's just the best. But um, I suppose as the author, you're allowed to think that it could be better another way. 
I can and I can disagree as the reader, but I'll be interested to see what you do. You liked it the way that it was. I'm really glad um, because it was something that you know, like there, I could have gone either way while I was writing it. Like there were times when it felt right, and then there were times when it felt like I wanted more. But that mystery you talk of is there are some psychological theories that uh, the reason we're drawn to fiction is that it gives us practice in guessing what other people are thinking. So that um, stories and narratives, we're drawn to them as like a species because it allows us to practice social interactions and rehearse um, emotional situations. And part of that is being able to read someone whose thoughts you can't know, which is literally everyone. (laughs) In real life, we cannot know anyone's thoughts. And so being able to read... Uh, body language and facial cues and tone of voice are essential for social survival. And so fiction gives us sort of a a laboratory, if you will, a holodeck to kind of uh, get in these scenarios and and practice reading people. So there's something really to that about that single POV, having just that little bit of mystery. Also, I always think that the mysterious character is the sexiest. So, you know, if it's like Mr. Rochester and Jane Eyre, right? Like we never really know what he's feeling. And for some reason that mystery is just so tantalizing to me. Agree. I think there's a little bit of sweetness in withholding total gratification. Like there's enough, but it's not, it's, it, it leaves you a little bit wanting. And I like that feeling, but it's a, it's a narrow little sweet spot that I think you really found here. And also, um, you know, so much of, they have these conversations about the deepest imaginable topics and the darkest parts of themselves and their shared history. And they've known each other for so long that um, in their interactions and in Aiden's POV, you know, we still know so much about Elijah because of that, the, the depth of their past connection and then how they go like as deep as two people can in their um, conversations. So I don't know. I, I don't know. Okay, I said I wasn't gonna fangirl. I'm doing it again. That doesn't help. That's not helpful for anyone. <laughs> but anyway, this is why I love second chance romance is because you can cheat a little bit as an author with that shared history, right? And so instead of people learning sort of in real time, pay, in real page time about each other, um, they kind of already come to each other with sort of some context. Um, and as a as a writer, that is really nice to work with, right? Because like we can, through Aiden, feel this depth of history with Elijah without me having to sort of show all the moments these things are learned. We can kind of already um, come to the table. You know, it's like romance hero, just add water, right? Like I can just, he's sort of my like, you know, instant just add water hero because the other hero already knows so much about him. We don't have to like learn more to fall in love, which is nice as a writer. Then it allows you to have this intensity of feeling from early in the book without it feeling, you know, false at all because um, they, you know, they already are um, in love with each other at the beginning. And um, you don't have to spend pages convincing us that they've fallen in love from scratch. So I agree. I love I love any kind of um, book where the characters have baggage. It doesn't have to be second chance, but some kind of past connections. They already um, already have that background. Yeah. So this book was everything about it was was like it was written for me, which I know it wasn't, but it feels that way. Okay, so Aiden, um, speaking of him and some of these kind of uh, soul wrenching conversations, and also the warning that we gave at the beginning of the episode. 
his mental health is obviously a huge part of the book. I mean, it is what he's wrestling with and what drove him um, to seek the to seek the monastery. So in the scene where Aiden um, reveals what happened, you know, the night that he left and kind of what happened before that leading up to it and what he was struggling with, um, I mean, that scene was just so powerful. I'm wondering how the, how you how you create a scene like that? Is it something that is hard to write? Is it cathartic for you too? Is it something that you kind of saw in the story at the beginning? I don't, and I, I bet the answer to that last question is no, because you've said that the story kind of evolves as you write it. So I guess I'm, I'm curious what you can share about writing that scene. Yeah. So um, for anyone who hasn't read the book yet, the scene is um, sort of contained. So in the content warning at the beginning of the book, it will tell you what chapter it is. And I kind of purposely tried to contain a lot of this, um, him explaining to Elijah what he's gone through and kind of the the places that he's been with this journey with depression. Um I try to sort of contain it to this one, this one thing, right? This one chapter so that people could, you know, kind of know from context clues what was going on, but they could easily read over it and, you know, not have to sort of uh, be in it empathetically. Um, and I also did that for the reason that I really wanted to pull back some of the I'm trying to think of the right word, a pull back the veil a little bit on what we talk about in more um, gentle language and discourse, right? Like we use more gentle language and and the book, you know, is, is not necessarily vague, but it kind of, you know, is is more comfortable in, in the language it uses to talk about depression and suicidal ideation. And I kind of wanted to just have a moment where where you could really put yourself in those shoes uh, and you could really see why Aiden, why there was no other choice for him to go to the monastery. Like it was like, that was a choice of survival getting in that truck that morning. It was not a selfish choice. It was not a choice made because he thought, you know, abandoning someone would be fun. It was a choice of survival. And to get to a point where you have to see that as your only choice of survival, like you really have to understand kind of the edge of the cliff that this person is standing at. Um, and I found it, I mean, mental health and suicidal ideation are, you know, things that uh, I have in my past that were in my mother's past. And so like, uh, and now in my children's past or and present. And so like, this is something that when we live with it, it can often be really hard to articulate it. And so I knew that it was an indelible part of the story. I knew, and I knew from the beginning of writing Aiden that this was a part of Aiden that, you know, for someone as playful and chaotic and, you know, uh, vivacious and lusty as Aiden was, that there was sort of a balancing uh, darkness inside of him. And that, you know, this was, that the whole of Aiden was someone who was sort of swinging between these two extremes of like both chaos and then just intense depression. And so I knew it from the beginning, but I think even, even knowing that it was part of his character, it still was interesting to sit down to write this chapter and actually turn it into language, right? So for, for so much of us, an experience with mental health is something that defies language. And it's something that 
you know, makes talk therapy and psychotherapy so helpful, cognitive behavioral therapy, because it does force us to anchor things into language. Um, but it was really hard to sort of write this chapter and coherently describe this experience in a way that would both be powerful and cathartic to people who um, have had this experience or have been adjacent to people who've had this experience, uh, but then also accessible for someone who literally has never brushed up against this once in their life, you know, and they're like, God bless them. There are people out there who are like, I don't, I don't understand why, you know, Aiden would just leave Elijah and abandon him. I don't know why he would just ghost his entire life. I don't understand how someone could be that sad. And so being able to say like, it's not about being sad, right? Like it's, it's depression is, um, it's a, it's, it's on a different wavelength than, than sadness and happiness. It is a non-wavelength, if you will. It is, it is a void. And so like writing, putting that experience into language was incredibly, um, I don't even know how to describe it because I'm not the kind of writer who uh, emotes at my keyboard. I know some writers, you know, they'll cry if they're writing a particularly moving scene or they'll laugh if they're writing a really funny scene. Um, I'm not particularly that surface level with my emotions because I tend to feel things in like geologic time. Uh, so like, you know, I'm sometimes I'll get sad about something that happened like eight years ago because that's just how long it takes for <laughs> my feelings to move through the queue. Um, so I wasn't like crying as I was writing it, but it was something I could feel in my body, um, in a really powerful and a good way. And that was one of those moments where I had written myself to the sort of experience, uh, where writing had become a form of prayer and meditation for me. And I had not realized it until I had written that and had realized that by writing that, I was engaging in a spiritual act, that it wasn't just a creative act or a professional act to write this chapter, that something about it was spiritual for me um, to do it right and to do it well and to do it um, both authentically and cathartically. Um, and so it was incredibly powerful to write. And then it gave me a whole new outlook on what I was doing <laughs> with my life, <laughs> you know, just like in general, like that writing when I'm doing it right, when I'm doing it in the way that is the most resonant with me is very close to a spiritual act that it is a sacred vocation. And that by writing, I am engaging in a kind of prayer in the sense that it is a nexus point between my body and language and what we would call the the soul. Um, which is a funny thing to lay on a like, you know, 3500 word chapter. <laughs> <laughs> to be like, it changed my entire outlook on my career, but it, it really did. You know, before we um, started the interview, we were talking about how you feel like this book, writing this book in particular, kind of um, was a was a journey for you. And then it's a journey for the characters. And I think for the for readers, I can't imagine that I'm alone in saying that it was that it felt that way to me. I just like I learned a lot about all kinds of things and even though I have never had suicidal ideation or thoughts myself I have been depressed you know I mean I've just I have never had that kind of depression that has pushed me that far yet you mm -hmm. know to that place mm -hmm. but I am a person who I have always felt a little frightened by and a little um uncomfortable with oh. even engaging with the subject of suicide like it just feels 
like too much and I don't know how. And so I just back away from it. And I found it um, very helpful for me to be kind of walked down this, I mean, frightening, but, but in a good way, like shown where my own experience with depression kind of intersects with what kind of an experience would put someone in a place where they might choose to do kind of that, that awful thing um, that is, seems so unimaginable until, um, you know, for me really, until I read this book and then I feel like I understand it better. And that feeling I think is um, a good one to have, like, you know, you kind of humanizing things um, in people who you love, that people who you love have experienced, some of whom, you know, and some of whom haven't shared that with you, you know, I think, um, or if you are at a point in your own mental health journey where, you know, it, things get difficult and you experience something like that for the first time, I feel like there's a lot of hope in seeing that it's, um, you know, that it's an emotional path that can be um, walked and you can live through it and arrive safely at the other side of it. I guess I just feel like all, demystifying some of these things is so important for us and for the people that we're trying to support and, and, you know, for ourselves, if, cause you just never, I don't think any of us ever expect to be in that position. And so, um, I really, I loved the book for so many reasons, including that scene, which I felt like brought me closer than I thought I wanted to get to the subject, but really helped me understand it better. And so, um, all that being said, for people who need to skip that chapter, I hadn't thought about it, but that, that was wise of you kind of to contain it there. So people who don't, who don't want to do that today can't, you know, can enjoy the book without going all the way there. Um, but I learned from the book, I learned about beer and also I learned about, you know, the, this, the kind of the darkest night of the soul, you know, there. And, um, so yeah, talk about. I talk about a journey for me as a reader and I appreciate that um, I had a, someone I trust explicitly to take me, you know, there. Cause I yeah. feel like that's, uh, that's a, um, it's not my first Sierra Simone book and I've learned that I can follow you wherever um, you lead and it's always fine. And so I, I appreciate that so much about your work and I don't want to keep you too much longer because we only have you till the end of the hour because you have to go do some uh, parenting, we understand. So <laughs> like full-time job, I'll tell you what. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny how that works. Um, I don't know, Ella, do you think that we have time for our question about the audiobook or should we just ask what Sierra thinks we should read next? I'm, okay, I'm gonna be controversial. I'm gonna we'll ask the audiobook question and we'll skip out the reviews. The okay, sounds no. good. The audiobook question is important. It is because um, I listened to the audiobook twice. I think the narrator is one of my favorite performances I've ever listened to. He oh wow! A playful like side to it, like he really brings out like, the humor, but then also just deals like the more serious aspects really well. So mm. I just wanted to know kind of what you know. How did you go about creating this audiobook? Well, so uh, for anyone who's listened to me before, like, you know, this is not my first rodeo with Jacob Morgan. And so he's someone who I have a ton of trust in um, as a performer. His background is in acting. Um, and so I think when you have narrators with an acting background, um, they really, I mean, tons of narrators are good without an acting background. But with an acting background, I do think that Jacob comes to a story knowing 
that a performance should be dynamic, you know, and knowing that there should be sort of highs and lows and, um, you know, moments of humor and levity, um, and that, you know, that can all be expressed through the, through the performance. Um, and so when he and I were working on it initially, I just, I made sure to content warning it for him, you know, because I think that's one thing that, you know, sometimes as authors, we get really, we've gotten practice at doing it for readers. Uh, and then we forget that, you know, people on the production side could benefit from that heads up as well. So I made sure before um, I sent him the book that I talked over with him, you know, that this deals with depression and suicidal ideation. Um, and, you know, there, I was not really, um, thoroughly interested in uh, showing all of Catholicism's homophobia. Um, so I, there are very few homophobic moments. But there are hints of it, right? Friction that Aiden encounters um, from some of the other people in the Catholic Church. Um, so I just made sure that I had a conversation with him about, you know, these are some of the challenging topics in the book. Um, and he was totally on board. Sean Christen, who does the interstitials with Elijah, also was totally on board and so fantastic. I mean, just such a, I mean, the way that he reads Elijah is exactly how Elijah sounded in my head. Um, and so I have the same, I really think that so much of creating a good audiobook is not only about casting the right people, but it is about having a producer that you really like working with. Um, and so I've worked with my audiobook producer, Lyric Audiobooks, for several books now. And so we have a pretty seamless relationship where I was able to be like, hey, okay, this and that, you know, and really so much of audiobook production comes down to uh, the phonetic alphabet because <laughs> you're trying to be like, okay, this is how you pronounce this random, you know, provincial dish in the south of France. And, you know, this is how, this is the accent that this character is going to have. Okay. And now here's an Irish accent. And so, you know, being able to get all of that coordinated so that for the listener, it is um, a tapestry of experiences. You know, when you're listening to the audiobook, you really feel like uh, you are fully, not only going on this emotional journey, but a geographic journey with um, Aiden and Elijah. So yeah, that was that was really what it was, was came down to was, you know, just getting on board, everyone on board beforehand with, you know, what the book wrestled with so that everyone felt comfortable. And, you know, I really find this is like what they say with intimacy coordinators and sex scenes, right? Like when everyone feels comfortable, then everyone is allowed to do their best work. So really just removing any potential obstacle or friction so that we could all just really engage um, that that's what I think makes a really good strong audiobook. But mostly I can't really take credit for it because mostly it's just Jacob and Sean are amazing. Yeah, agreed. I um I listened to it as well. I read it first but then listened to the audiobook and I know I will listen to it multiple times. It was um an outstanding one. But I agree with you, both of those performers are wonderful. And so I was very excited to see that they were um, they were cast in it. So, but Sierra, thank you so much. Um, if you have thirty seconds to tell us what you're working on, so we can um, have you back whenever that book comes out, we'd love to hear about it. Otherwise, we'll we'll let you go since you need to go, mom. I will. I'll just say really quick because it's a really super fun project. Um, my best friend uh, who wrote um, the book Dumplin', which the Netflix original movie, which Jennifer Aniston is based on, 
Um, she and I co-wrote a book called A Merry Little Meet Cute that's coming out this fall. Um, it is about a plus size adult film star who is semi accidentally cast in like a squeaky clean Christmas movie. Um, and so she has to hide her, her, the real nature of her job, uh, while she's filming this movie. Um, and, but she's starring opposite a washed up pop star who happens to secretly be her number one subscriber. Um, so they are like just immediately in love. Uh, and want to do all the dirty things, but they can't. Um, both both characters are bisexual, so it's queer MF. Um, and it's just like, we're calling it a raunch-com because it's a rom-com, but like it's just as spicy as any of my other books. So it's it's pretty dirty, but it's also pretty funny, pretty silly, very happy. So just a dose of like serotonin, I think, this fall. I'm so excited for that. <laughs> Thank you. I'm so glad I asked for that. All right. Well, that is all that we all that we have of Sierra's time. So we'll sit there. Thanks again for coming. Thank you for creating your beautiful book. And um, well, we will be looking forward to the next one for sure. That sounds amazing. Thank you guys for having me. You guys are always so nice to me. <laughs> Thank you.